From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Hi, I'm Faisa Sanjar, and this is the JAMA Medical News Summary, an audio review of news highlights appearing in this month's issues of the journal. Today, I'll be reviewing the medical news highlights from the January 2019 issues of JAMA. In the January 1-8 double issue, Rebecca Volker writes about the increasing burden of black lung disease among U.S. underground miners. Once as low as 5% in the 1990s, the prevalence of black lung climbed to 17% by 2017. Especially troubling is the dramatic increase over the last 25 years in the most severe form of the disease, progressive massive fibrosis, or PMF, in coal country. And the demographic of those affected with PMF appears to be changing, now being detected in younger, early career miners. But despite these trends, many miners do not participate in free lung disease screening initiatives for fear of losing their job. A complex brew of social, financial, and environmental factors pose challenges for physicians treating patients with black lung. In cases where a patient decides to file federal disability claim after diagnosis, physicians also face the added pressures of participating in that legal process. In the midst of all of this, physicians are implementing initiatives to help get the word out about the resurgence in black lung disease and assist minors in getting screened. To learn more, read the full article in our first issue of 2019. In the same issue, Rita Rubin interviews Nobel Peace Prize winner Dennis McQuigwe, MD, PhD. Dr. McQuigwe, a gynecological surgeon, recounts his early childhood experiences that led him to medicine and describes the work that he continues to do treating survivors of rape and torture at the Ponzi Hospital of Bakuvu in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. When we start the hospital, of course, we're just treating women on the medical side. But uh, very quickly we discover that the medical treatment was not enough because after to treat them surgically or to treat infection, most of women were just around the hospital seeking other care because it was something we, we, we at this moment we didn't really get experience of the psychological trauma. And when we, we understood that the big problem also was after to be raped in public, raped in front of the children and husband and the community. Women were not really very ready to go back in their community with the stigmatization. So at this moment, we create a unity of psychologists and psychosocial assistants. After two years, we find that women were really better psychologically and physically. But the big question was, how I will go back in my community uh, when no one uh, will accept me, uh, I'm uh, stigmatized, I'm rejected by, by the family and so on. The only one way to get them go return back was to give them the economical autonomy and try to talk with the, the community so they can accept them because it was not their fault to be raped, but it's because the uh, community, the society didn't protect them. So we start the third pillar of what we are doing, and this pillar is a socio-economic support. And uh, after a few years, 
some women, when they become enough strong physically, psychologically, and economically, when they become very strong, their need was to go to justice and try to get the perpetrators to go to the car. And, uh, and there, we start to support them with uh, advice. We have some lawyers who could support them to go to justice. And now, this model, we can see that the healing of uh, victim of sexual violence is a process. And this process is not only medically, but it's also psychologically, economically, social, and legal. He also describes how rape has been used as a weapon of war. In our country, uh, the economy is on the shoulder of women. And when you destroy them, they become sick. They can't produce. So economically also, you, you destroy the, the community. So you, you can see with all these consequences in destroying women, you can get the same consequences as the consequences that you can get with classic weapon. But also, these consequences can go to generation to another generation. Because when they have AIDS, for example, they can also transmit the AIDS to the next generation. So I can say that this weapon is one of the terrible weapons, even if sometimes we don't really take care enough about the use of rape as a weapon of war, but it can destroy for a long time, destroy the social fabric, destroy the economy, destroy the population. So I think that we should be more careful about to fight against this weapon with a terrible weapon. After an assassination attempt on his life in 2012, Mukwege left Congo thinking he'd never return until his patients convinced him to come back. What happened with my patient? When they start to ask me to come back and I didn't respond, I didn't answer to, to their demand, they wrote to the president of Congo and the president didn't answer. So they write to the Secretary General of the UN, they didn't get answer. And what they did was so touching for me because uh, they said, okay, no one wants to help us, so we'll do it ourselves. We'll organize ourselves to get Dr. Mukwege back because we need him and we will protect him. At this moment, they start to sell fruits and vegetables and each Friday come with $50 at the hospital, and they said, we will come every Friday until we'll get the ticket to him to, sub- to pay his ticket to come back. And for me, when I just thought that all these women don't have one dollar per day for their own life, but they could get $50 per week, of course, hundred of them, but to get $50, for me, it was so touching that uh, the women I treated could get this idea and, and just say, if no one wants to help us, we will do it ourselves. So I just feel that how can I protect my life, only my life? It's just a, a single life to compare with thousands of women who want me to come back 
to justice them. And they said, we'll protect you. Come back, we'll take care of you. January featured another two interviews. In the first, Rita Rubin spoke with Megan Rainey, MD-MPH, one of the leading voices of the This Is Our Lane movement, which advocates that physicians and other healthcare professionals play an important role in addressing firearm violence. The movement was born from the NRA's critical Twitter response to a recent American College of Physicians position paper on reducing firearm injuries. This single tweet, which admonished doctors to quote-unquote stay in their lane, galvanized the medical community into action. Gun violence is absolutely an American epidemic, and it's been an issue that many of us have been working on behind the scenes for years. I think that the galvanization that we saw after the tweet was partly a response to the outrageousness of the assertion, but also partly reflected the hard work that a lot of folks have been doing over the months and honestly years since Sandy Hook and before to try to develop a coherent public health approach to this issue. According to Rainey, the movement hopes to raise awareness of firearm violence as a public health problem, among other goals. So one of the neatest things about This Is Our Lane is that it was this beautiful organic movement that grew off of the work that many of us have been doing for years to talk about gun violence as a public health problem, but in a way that brought in folks from across the country and from both sides of the political divide that's been plaguing our country to really take a stand to say that, again, this is about patience and about human lives. I think we will figure out in the weeks and months to come what the next steps are, and there are many of us working on that. But I think that for all of us that have been involved, our biggest goal is to save lives and prevent injuries. There are going to be folks working on that from a lot of different directions. For some people, it's about continuing to keep this public health issue in the public eye. For some, it is about federal funding or, again, non-federal funding, with private sector funding being a really critical part of this solution, certainly right now and possibly forever. It's going to be about education of physicians and patients. It's going to be about improving care for survivors. At the end of the day, what I hope will come out of this movement is a collective commitment to the fact that it doesn't have to be this way. We don't need to approach gun violence as a political problem. And with the other folks involved with This Is Our Lane, as well as various collaborators across the country, ranging from a firm to folks at the University of Michigan involved with the FACTS group, to folks at University of California Davis with the What You Can Do initiative, to a group of med students called SAFE. There are a lot of us working very strongly together to try to move the needle to decrease gun deaths so that next year or in two years or five years, we can look and say, not that we've gotten this down to zero, but that we've started to make some real progress in reversing this epidemic. In the second interview, Jennifer Abbasi spoke with Rebecca Thurston, PhD, about her recent study published in JAMA Internal Medicine that found sexual harassment and assault were associated with worse midlife health among women. Thurston heads the Women's Biobehavioral Health Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh, where one line of research is devoted to psychosocial factors in women's cardiovascular disease. 
she knew that traumatic events such as sexual harassment and assault are potent stressors. And she suspected that they could have some bearing on women's cardiac health. A post hoc analysis of the study of midlife women was recently published in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it suggests that she was right. We found that 19% of the women reported in the clinically significant, and 22% reported a history of sexual assault with relatively minimal overlap between those two groups. So they were not the same women. We found that women with a history of sexual harassment had approximately twofold odds of hypertension relative to women who did not have a history of sexual harassment, as well as a twofold odds of poor sleep, approximately twofold odds of poor sleep that fell within the clinically significant ranges for sleep problems such as insomnia. When it came to sexual assault, we found that women with a history of sexual assault had an almost threefold odds of depressive symptoms in the range of major depressive disorder and a twofold elevated odds of anxiety and poor sleep in clinically significant ranges. To learn more, visit our articles in the January 15th and 22nd issues. Also in the January 15th issue, Mary Jane Friedrich reviews the latest advancements in cancer immunotherapies. While immunotherapy, like checkpoint inhibitors, have been heralded as a paradigm-shifting approach to cancer treatment, the fact remains that they currently only help some patients with certain types of cancer. Researchers are now hard at work developing novel approaches to maximize the efficacy, minimize the toxicity, and expand the use of checkpoint inhibitors across a broader range of cancers. These approaches include the use of biomarkers for better predicting patient responses to checkpoint inhibitors and combining these drugs with one another or other immune-modulating agents. Such agents include the anti-CD40 antibody, which acts as a molecular switch to convert cold tumors into hot ones that are capable of mounting a robust immune response. Researchers are also looking into manipulating the gut microbiome to boost responses to checkpoint inhibitors and utilizing checkpoint inhibitors earlier on in cancer treatment. And finally, in the January 29th issue, Bridget Kuhn writes about increases in sexually transmitted infections recently reported by the CDC. After decades of progress in reducing STIs, the U.S. is seeing an alarming reversal in this promising trend. Experts agree that one of the driving forces is a weakened sexual health services safety net. Funding and budget cuts have befallen many local STI clinics and programs, which play an essential role in STI prevention and care. Worsening socioeconomic conditions may also be contributing. To combat this alarming trend, physicians are taking proactive approaches to increase STI screening and treatment, which include implementing express clinic models that allow patients to skip the physician exam and collect their own samples for STI testing. More widespread adoption of partner treatment, or treating a patient's sexual partner sight unseen when they test positive for an STI, could also help quell the spread of STIs, according to experts. Next up, our running series, Bench to Bedside, which covers recent advances in preclinical biomedical research. This month, Tracy Hampton discusses findings recently published in Nature describing a novel antibiotic that targets multidrug-resistant gram-negative bacteria. Researchers developed the novel agent by chemically modifying naturally occurring aralomycins to optimize activity against an essential bacterial enzyme called type 1 signal peptidase. The synthetic aralomycin was 500 times more potent than its naturally occurring counterpart, 
and demonstrated potent activity against several deadly strains of multidrug-resistant gram-negative bacteria. For more details, visit the January 1-8 double issue of JAMA. In our monthly column covering the latest biotech innovations, Dara Grenin writes about three projects in infectious disease care that recently received awards at the first inaugural IDEA Incubator Competition, which took place during the latest ID Week conference. The three finalists, among 57 entries from across the globe, presented innovations aimed at overcoming patient care challenges in resource-limited settings, including a breath-printing device to diagnose malaria, a solar-powered oxygen delivery system, and a point-of-care combination maternal finger prick test for hepatitis B, HIV, and syphilis. Visit the January 15th issue of JAMA to read more. Moving on to the headlines and news from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Food and Drug Administration. Bridget Kuhn covers CDC reports documenting increases in tick-borne diseases, youth e-cigarette use, and uterine cancer incidence and mortality, as well as stalled progress in reducing secondhand smoke exposure. For more details, visit the January 15th and 29th issues. Rebecca Volker reports that the FDA approved the first biosimilar to rituximab for treatment of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. In other headlines, the FDA also announced the approval of two new acute myeloid leukemia treatments, and amifampridine for adults with the rare muscle weakening disease Lambert-Easton myasthenic syndrome. For more details, visit the January 1, 8, and 22nd issues. And last but not least, in the same issue of JAMA, Anita Slomsky reviews findings from five recently published randomized clinical trials. Among them, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine found that peanut oral immunotherapy successfully desensitized children and adolescents allergic to peanuts. In other clinical trial news, the novel antibiotic, zolifidacin, was effective in treating uncomplicated cases of gonorrhea, and hypnotherapy was more effective than educational supportive care in relieving symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. For more details on these and other trials, visit our clinical trials update column. For more in medical news, including the JAMA Forum, Global Health, and Health Agencies updates, please visit our January issues online at jamanetwork.com. That's all for this month's medical news highlights. Join us again next month for another episode of the JAMA Medical News Summary. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to jamanetworkaudio.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. Audio production for this episode was by Michelle Krasinski. This is Faisal Sanjar, director and editor of JAMA Medical News. Thanks for listening.